This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am Janice Leibovitz. You are my People of the Book. And I have to say I am slightly awestruck this morning to have one of South Africa's literary legends with me as my guest. It is my absolute honor and privilege to introduce Dr. Sindiwe Magona to you this morning. Dr. Magona, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And we are going to be chatting predominantly about your new book, When the Village Sleeps. But also, um, briefly, tell me, you, how did you start writing? How did you get into writing? I, I got prodded along the way. Uh, I got encouraged. Before I, even before I left South Africa, I belonged to various organizations, including Church Women Concerned, which was a cover up for multiracial, multicultural, multi, you know, people who belong to different, uh, 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 you know, belief systems, uh, Christians and uh, Muslims and Jewish and atheists. But we, you know, people who wanted to, we, we thought we were working for peaceful change. The women's movement, et cetera, sacred. And, uh, in, it was in those encounters that I discovered that even ordinary things were not really ordinary. Things I took for granted were revelations to other people. And that was a, a, a a huge learning for me that there was value in even what I knew. You know, you know, apartheid made all of us have very low expectations of ourselves. And it was during these encounters that my expectations of myself grew a little bit. People said, you should write that down. And I thought, Right, me, but it, it took ages for me to actually get to it. And it was the confluence of aging. I was approaching 50, fear. What would I do after 60 when I would be kicked out? You know, the world has, has, has decided 60, you no longer are useful. No job. What would I do? I knew. I prayed I would have a long uh, and fruitful and pleasant, happy retirement. I wasn't fixing to die, you know, shortly after 60. Uh, I prayed for a decade. Now I've lived two decades beyond that, and I'm praying for another, I'm still praying for another decade. And so I I realized I would write, and I got fearful that if I, I waited until retirement, I would then believe, having been taught throughout my life, that I was too old to do anything I hadn't done. Then I told myself, you start writing now. If you have, Then you will have a book, and then you can tell yourself you are continuing doing something you already know. Well, all these books later, do you think I know I, I can write? No, I'm still trying to convince myself. Well, I think you've convinced the rest of us because you are a prolific writer. And I think that you have been able to to have amazing influence 
on so many and you've you've helped so many other writers as well or and upcoming writers and you've been a mentor to to many young writers and many people who've who've tried to write and you've been a mentor to them and um I think that you've convinced the rest of us even if you haven't convinced yourself so I think we appreciate that so thank you for that we're going to take a very brief break and then we will be back to talk about the actual book and how that came about I love it when you read to me this is people of the book with Janice Leibovitz I'm back with my guest, South African writer Dr. Sindiwe Magona, and we are talking about her book, her latest book, In a Line of Many, When the Village Sleeps. The village in question is, well, they say it takes a village to raise a child, and the village in question here is actually a whole country, and the book itself is actually a social commentary. How did the book itself come about? How did that come to be written? My books come out of my life and how it, where and how it is lived. I live in the southern suburbs of Cape Town. Our community magazine, The Echo, comes out on a Thursday morning. So one Thursday, years and years ago, I read an article that has dogged me to this day. 16-year-old holding a baby she tried to have from age 13. She must have succeeded at 15 to get pregnant. Then she says, I used to drink before I got pregnant. After I got pregnant, I started taking drugs. She gives the reason. She wanted the baby to be deformed. This This is an interview with a social worker. She wanted the baby to be deformed because of the bigger grant, 300. This is the, against, the, the Sasa grant. The Sasa grant, 300 for a normal child, 1,400, a little more, for a, a, a deformed child. And the social worker ends the, this horrible interview. This is the end line. This is a growing trend in the townships. Oh, wow. That's a shocker. I'm still shocked all these years later. This is a known... Trend. They know this about. is a growing trend in the townships. The social worker says. So, just to give okay. a bit of background to to my listener, um, in the book, the book is about a generation um, in a family. There is, and and the child in question who who does become pregnant is Bussy in the book, who becomes pregnant when she is thirteen. Shockingly. Mm-hmm. She sets out to fall pregnant. And while she is pregnant, she does drink and she does take drugs. Um, in the book, she, she doesn't seem to knowingly, um, do this. She, she does knowingly fall pregnant. She, she plans to fall pregnant, but she, she doesn't say to herself that she wants to have a deformed child. Am, am I right there? Because that, that, that. It's, it's implied somewhere there. It's oh, implied okay. when she decides she's going to have a real family, a loving family, they will have everything. She's going to live with her boyfriend. And because she's going to have this 
better child. This child who will end here, all this, they will make it. And the money that they're going to get to have this wonderful life is going to purely come from that grant because yes. she has no other plan of how she's going to make money. She does say no. she's going to complete her schooling. This is her normal. She decides to start taking drugs after she gets pregnant. This is for me the harrowing thing that instead of stopping to drink, which used to be the norm, in those people who were my grandmother's generation and her mother's generation, the people we called the red blanketed, Amataba, Abuz. They knew, they, they didn't know the word school, but they knew as soon as they were with child, they stopped smoking those long pipes, they stopped drinking a, a homemade, the homemade brew, Mkombut. They knew that, and they would say, now I am eating for two. They respected the, the, the life growing inside their bodies. These are people we call ignorant, backward. And today, a growing trend is maiming the fetus in, in your own womb. But we have lived with this in South Africa, even unintentionally. Fast fetal alcohol syndrome has plagued this country for decades. And if you Google now, we are the leading country in that incident. I was not aware of that. That is that is horrifying. We lead the rest of the world in in fetal in the incidence of fetal alcohol. These are people who are who will never be who they were meant to be for the rest of their lives. And we do nothing. Nothing that stops it. It's a and, growing trend. And and Busi, Busi Siwe, is a child who's been given every opportunity because she has been sent to a school outside of the township. She's been sent to a, a, a good school. She's getting a good education. Um, compliments of Mrs. Bird, who Busi's grandmother, Kulu, used to work for. And Mrs. Bird has now gifted Busi with a good education. So one would hope that this is a child who would know better. And she's the one who who now disappoints her family with this pregnancy. And we see the contrast, as you've, you've spoken about the contrast between the generations, and, and this shows very clearly in your book, you've shown me the contrast between the generations. And also the contrast is shown very clearly between um, village life, and, and I'm going to come, we're going to come to this later, between village life and township life. With the way this pregnancy is is viewed and the opinion on this pregnancy, when you see that that how how Bussy's township friends celebrate the pregnancy, her, her classy friends, her township friends, they throw her a huge party. I mean, I suppose we'd call it a baby shower. A massive yes. party. They celebrate, and I mean, her family are are disappointed. To to is an understatement. But her township friends are, are thrilled. They're excited. They think this is just the most wonderful thing that their 13 year old friend is going to have a baby. And we get used to horrendous stuff. And this is one of the huge contrasts. And you show this speaking about the generations, just to, to explain again to, to my listener, the generations in this book are there is Kulu, who is the grandmother who has now left Cape Town where the story takes place. It takes place in the Cape. She's now left. She's gone back to to her village in the Eastern Cape. 
There's her daughter, Phyllis, who is not really an example to, to Bussy. There's Bussy, Kulu's granddaughter. And there's the baby who Bussy is going to have, whose name is Mandla Kazi. Mandla. And we're going to, to talk about Mandla later. And then there is the old, the ancestors, who speak through, through Mandla, through Mandla Kazi. And you've used a conduit of poetry. It's absolutely beautiful the way you, you speak through poetry, through Mandla, throughout the book. Tell me um, briefly about that. The poetry comes from what I have gleaned from poets such as Jordan, Jolobe, Mkai. And to me, it would appear that the spirit, the ancestor, wouldn't just come blah, blah, blah in ordinary. You know, they whisper. They, they, they are soft in their speech. They are melodious. They, you know, they are gentle, but they are also, you know, there is an urgency in what they say. So it comes out almost a song, repetition, repetition, and a lot. So that's why it comes out in poetry form. And it's, it really, as you say, melodious and gentle. Mm. And the way the voices speak, it's, it's really, it flows and it's, there's a beauty to it. Because it comes out of love, out of love and, and, and sorrow to see the flesh people, the people who still wear flesh on their souls, you know, uh, do this to themselves because all the hurt, all the damage, on this earth is self-inflicted by on humanity, by humanity. We are such dangerous, damaging as a species. We really, and we then fool ourselves. We are the best of the, <laughs> the most brilliant, superior to every other life form. We should be scared. Yeah. We're going to take another short break and we'll, we'll be back and we'll be really unpacking the story and these characters. I love it. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. I am back with my guest, Dr. Cindy Wemagona, and we are talking about her beautiful new book, When the Village Sleeps, which is an incredible social commentary, and it talks about village life, township life, the contrast between the two, and what we can learn from what the village has to say, what the ancestors have to say, and what we can learn from from generational differences. Dr. Magona, we've spoken about um, the ancestors and the poetry that you've interspersed in this book and, and the voices and the way the voices speak gently. Talk to me about Kulu and her life previously, her life with Mrs. Bird and why she's now gone back to her village in the Eastern Cape. That generation like the generation of my parents, came to the urban areas, never planning to settle here. This was not seen as home. Home was back there in the village. They were here to work, to arm themselves with whatever it was they needed back home. And then things didn't turn out that way. But for Kulu and her late husband, Trombe, that dream was a burning one. So they built Ekupumling back in the Eastern Cape, Estuadwin. And 
because Shombe died young, Kulu had this dream because that's where he was buried, that she would go upon retirement, she would go and be near him physically. And so for her, returning to the Eastern Cape is the fulfillment of a dream. But it's a ranch, but she's also escaping the ever-demanding daughters, especially Phyllis. She wants to leave all that behind. She wants to leave Mandaka, Mrs. Bird. You know, she wants to be with Slombe and be with herself and actually rest from the owner's responsibility of being head of the expanding family. An expansion she doesn't welcome, especially when she looks at her elder daughter, Phyllis, and the two add-ons, the add-ons. Yes. Phyllis knows that she's not an example to her children. I mean, Bussy, her daughter, is left to bring up her two siblings who who then arrive. I mean, and strangely, Bussy's father left Phyllis because she he says that Phyllis couldn't give him a son. And as soon as he leaves and... Um, they get kicked out of, of where they're living. Phyllis goes and finds herself, whoever she finds, and produces two sons, mm-hmm. ironically. And Bussy is left to bring up these two boys because Phyllis is never around. She's out carousing and partying and drinking and doing whatever she's doing. And Phyllis knows she's not an example to her children, but she does have the wherewithal to see that Bussy is falling in with the wrong crowd. And she she does realize that she needs to send Bussy for the school holidays to stay with Kulu in the village. And Bussy, unfortunately, is already pregnant. She's in the early stages of pregnancy and she goes to stay with Kulu and her with um with Kulu and her eyes are really opened to a different type of life and a different type of lifestyle. And talk to me about that relationship that is established while she's there in the village and watch what she does. This is one of the ironies I hope people get from the book. Phyllis doesn't want Lucy to be like her. She can see that she's going to, you know, much as she herself, she, she has let herself go, you know, down. She, 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 she would want to, in her befuddled mind, save Lucy. Unfortunately, by the time she tries to do this, it's too late. And by the time Lucy wakes up to what she has done, again, it is too late. So, you know, people have all the, you know, the good intentions. Everybody wants a good life. But, you know, the decisions we make don't always lead to the good life we want. The idea is that, you know, have your goals, but be careful of the decisions you make. Goals do not manifest unless you are careful with the decisions you make. Each step is important in life. And Busi grows in the village when she sees even the othering she has experienced because you know, Kulu, Mrs. Bird, and, you know, her mother, uh, Phyllis, and her aunt, Lily. Everybody thinks Lucy should be so enthralled with this 
golden opportunity. They don't realize how hard it is for her to negotiate these two diametrically opposed worlds. You know, yes, she's getting an opportunity, but there's a price to this that most people don't realize. We see the glamorous side. She is getting this, and she, but what is the price? And that was actually quite, it's an eye-opener because, as you say, they don't realize. They see her going off to the school in her what they consider to be a fancy uniform to her fancy school, but they don't really understand what she experiences when she goes there because she's a complete outsider. Yes, yeah, who is she at that, in that school? Then she becomes othered in the, so she falls in this yawning crack, void, doesn't belong to the Cape Town Post School, doesn't belong really to Kwanale. It's, it's a hard road she is walking. It's, it's not smooth. It's, cobbled and there are thorns she must tread on. And that's where she experiences that jealousy because she sees her friend, her 16-year-old friend, who's mm. who she sees her having what she thinks is a wonderful life, a 16-year-old who goes through a series of blesses and mm. she being gifted with, with fancy items, clothing, jewellery, and she's having this great life. And she has to go off to school and where she's, she's experiencing, you know, isolation really. And yeah. people don't understand she's, she's living this in between life and mm-hmm. it's actually quite heartbreaking for her. It doesn't excuse what she does, but one can understand the, the isolation and the fear that she feels. I don't want to give away anything about the child that she has, but let's talk briefly about, about Manda, Manda Kazi and, and who she is, um, without giving anything away, because I really, really do urge people to go and buy this book. It's, it's such a beautiful book, but let's talk briefly about, about Manda, who she is, her character and, and what she brings to to the family and how she she changes the dynamic. Mandla is flesh, but Mandla is also spirit. It's a bold intervention from the ancestors that one of them decides to manifest, to come back. It's not easy for them to do this, but they feel all the other methods, the usual methods they have used through the ages don't seem to work. They come to us in dreams. We have insights. Suddenly you think of something or you see something and it twigs an idea in your mind. You know, an example I often use now recently is this doctor, lung doctor, I forget the name, who came to South Africa as a refugee from the Sudan. He goes to his uncle in Kenya and doesn't get the support he needs. Uncle sends him out to the refugee camp. He doesn't want to go to the camp. He's drinking Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, one of those colas, and reads made in South Africa. And because of that, he decides, that's where I must go. And you're going to tell me this was not the ancestors working for him? He comes here, and then he realizes he doesn't have a cent. 
that there are missionaries who work in, in his country and they work in South Africa too. He finds them. They take him in, give him a scholarship. He's one of the leading lung doctors in South Africa now. His ancestors worked for him. They whisper to us. They give us signs. But our hearts, our souls, our minds, our eyes have to be open. There are, there's a lot of encouragement and help. There's a, a lot of good all around us. Ours is to be open. And that's why Mandlakazi comes to encourage that. The openness. Open to ourselves, to what is around us. The othering has to stop. Mandlakas is here to demonstrate that this is possible. That's why she comes as flesh, as not perfect, deformed or differently abled, but because she is also spirit. She is differently abled, but gifted. You say she's differently able but gifted. And we say that so much about children that are differently abled because I know that um, in a lot of cultures, children that are not, I mean, I don't know who or or what culture gets to define what normal is, mm-hmm. but yeah. children who are not what is considered to be normal, they and their families are often cast out. And they are often othered. And those are children who are considered to be gifted. They are children who are considered to be gifts. And these are the children who are, who are given those gifts. And instead of being appreciated, those are children and families that are often othered and cast out and, and people are, are cruel to them. This, this is Mandlakaz's work to open all eyes including the eyes of those outcasts, those society has, you know, othered. She is there to work with them and to make them realize what a gift they are to themselves and to the world. There are examples, brilliant examples of people who have managed to to demonstrate the abilities that are in our souls in our spirit, in our minds, irrespective of whatever the eye perceives, whether it is color, whether it is language, whether it is height or breath, or it doesn't matter. You are not that. None of us is just appearance. Absolutely. We're not defined by, by our outward look. No. And Mandla preaches this, that, you know, Whatever, you know, problem, handicap, gift, absence of gift, whatever, don't let that define you. Find the real you and up the game using the gift inside you. People have gifts. You may be sitting in a wheelchair because that's how you were made. Maybe you have song or poetry, or you can do, you can, you know, do sketches. And there are people who are supposed to be normal, who can draw. I'm an example. But because this, nobody calls me, you know, uh, limited because I can't draw. We can't all have the same gifts. We need the diversity. And we should revel in that diversity. And this is we are losing out so much. 
it's a very strong message in the book that we cannot let the outward package define us. We need to to show what is inside and use that to to show what what we have to offer the world, and that is our strength. Use what is inside yes. to to offer the world and use that as our strength. There's a lot in the book. I mean, I'm not going to get into a huge political debate, but as I said, this is a social commentary and there is huge, obviously, criticism of what is happening in our country today and about the limitations and the promises that have been made and broken time and time again to the people who, who need it most. Promises that have been offered, um, grants that are not given, grants that are distributed incorrectly. Talk to me briefly about that. Who would have thought almost 30 years after the legal end, the end of legal apartheid, there would not only still be poverty in South Africa, but that it would be growing. I mean, poverty is growing in South Africa. What is the point? What is the point of having, yes, I understand it's a good thing, legal apartheid ended. But are people who were poor during apartheid going to forever be cemented in that stratum with all the minds, with all the learning, with all the good hearts in this country? We cannot find a way to de-root, de-resonate apartheid, make it no longer viable, stop it growing. That's why to me, in my simple mind, to my simple mind really, the idea of saying to somebody, I will maintain this level of your life for 18 continuous years, doesn't ring like a policy filled with any optimism. How am I going to be sitting here poor for 18 years while you help me? Why am I not getting out of the poverty realm into something better? Can't we find a way? I mean, I use, I juxtapose the grant to the ways of helping poor people, the traditional ways. In the village of Yor, when Ubuntu still reigned supreme, anyone who couldn't make it, planting, sowing their was helped through Ilima. People with cattle and the wherewithal would finish plowing their own fields and then clap together and go to so-and-so's, either a widow with nothing or a poor person who somehow had fallen, you know, to that uh, level and help them plow and plant and sow and whatever. But then it was to up to that person to make sure that those things that were planted grew. Yes. A poor person does not need help to stay poor. They already found poverty. Don't help them stay in poverty. Help them get out. Find the ways. There are ways of getting out of poverty. Through skilling up, through education, but giving money, just money. And this is not even a lot of money. Giving money alone is not enough help. What I'm saying is, I'm not saying stop the grant. I'm saying stop the manner of distributing the grant. The grant must be used in ways that encourage 
healthy living, good living, good decision making. We are going to take another short break and we'll be back. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. I am back with my guest, Dr. Cindywe Magona, and we are talking about her book, When the Village Sleeps. Before the break, we were talking about, you mentioned briefly, a concept that runs through this book, the theme of Ubuntu. And Ubuntu translated means I am because you are. It's, I mean, I think many of us know that living in South Africa as we do. And you spoke about that um, concept and you mentioned when someone was, when things are grown, specifically in a village, and things were taken to um, maybe someone who had fallen on hard times, and things were then taken to that person. But then it was up to that person to to also grow the things that had been taken to them and to get themselves out of the, the tough times that they found themselves in. You speak a lot in the book about growing vegetables, vegetable gardens. Um, Bussy herself learns from her grandmother Kulu about growing and she comes back from the village and, and wants to grow her own vegetables about growing your own food. And obviously that is something that is quite important. And I know it's spoken about a lot here, sustainable living. Do you believe that, that that's something that's being encouraged enough in our country? No, it's not. Uh, and it's, it's a shame because most People in this country come from a tradition of, you know, living off the soil, from the soil, which makes you have a relationship with the soil. The land on which we build, where we plant, what we will eat, needs our care, our love, our respect. And if you have no relationship with what you eat, You know, that distance between you and the food you ingest uh, makes you less appreciative of Mother Earth. And without that appreciation, that knowing, that intimacy, you lose the caring. The connectedness is not there. And without it, we are lost. Look at how we are damaging Earth, water. Air and the plague with which we are now, you know, living for the past two years is here to teach us a lesson. We all belong. There is no my air, your air. We breathe the same air. We drink the same water. We swim the same seas. What I do has implications for people in China. What people in England do has implications for people in Russia. There is, I mean, we have these boundaries we believe in. They are a myth. They do not exist. We belong to the entire earth together. We are one. We are human beings. A life form on earth, one of the life forms. We need to respect that to be, you know, to wake up to that fact and to live as though we understood which we don't so obviously what you're saying is also this should be taught more in schools which it's not being done it's not being done it should be taught more at home this is you know we have left our home base 
Nobody talks about home. Education doesn't start at school. You're right. It doesn't stop at school. If I, if I had power, you know, I mean, when people bring children to school, they should also be examined. Are they proper parents? I mean, what's the point of giving a child this knowledge if when they go home, that is gainsaid? You know, the parent says that that's, that's hogwash. Right. The school and the home should be teaching the same lessons. You are quite right. And unfortunately, that those do not go hand in hand anymore. It's not a given. No, people expect children. They are big bellied. Nobody's giving them lessons. Now we know the importance of the first 1,000 days of a child's life. How many mothers who expect children now know that? So, you know, we are growing ever apart. The people who, who care enough, mind enough about the children they will have are the ones who, who know about those things. But everybody's having children without that knowledge or caring. Children need all of us, not just their biological parents, because they are growing up and will have impact on all of us, whether they are ours biologically or not. Which brings us full circle back to where we started with takes a village to raise a child. And I could talk to you about this all day, but unfortunately, we are going to have to leave it there and wrap up. Dr. Magona, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. And as I said before, I really encourage everyone to go and acquire this book. It's available in all bookshops online as well. It's published by Picador through Pan Macmillan. And it's called When the Village Sleeps. It's by Dr. Sindiwe Magona. If you don't know her, she is one of South Africa's living legends, a prolific author from our literary world. Dr. Magona, it has been an absolute pleasure having you as my guest this morning. Thank you so much for giving me your time. The pleasure is mine. The honor is mine. Thank you so much for having me. So much. And to you, you. dear listener, as I tell you every week, take care, look after yourself, look after each other. Wear your masks. The numbers are going up, unfortunately. Wear your masks, stay home, and read a book.